Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemian podcast. So today we're finally going to talk about none other than John Dee. Um, took me a while to do my research on this guy. I wanted to get it right. I've been looking forward to this one for a very long time. So John Dee was born on the 13th of July in 1527 and died somewhere around 1608 or 1609. So he came from kind of a Welsh family and there's a long list of things that he was. He wore many hats, obviously. He was an astronomer, astrologer, occultist, which that means very many things in his case, a navigator, imperialist, um, he was also a mathematician, he was into map making, cryptographer, magician, philosopher, um, and also maybe something that should maybe top the list was he was kind of a consultant to Queen Elizabeth I, who I've actually decided to do a show on. She, there's enough of an alchemy connection there. Um, so, yeah, very, very interesting sort of relationships that he, he made throughout his life, Travis. Yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot of interesting, interesting connections throughout his life. So he he devoted much of his life to the study of alchemy, and even I'd say a bigger portion of his life to divination and kind of Hermetic philosophy, Kabbalah, or kind of a Christian spin on Kabbalah. A lot of this stuff I got from a book by Glenn Perry. There's also a couple of chapters from a, a book from Francis Yates I got. Um, lots of interesting reading out there, especially stuff that hasn't been around for all that long. So a lot of new stuff has kind of come to light, which kind of like the Isaac Newton show, it seems like. There's a lot of new stuff coming out, and it's, it's really interesting. So people are kind of re-examining his life in a lot of or, ways. Or rediscovering. The, the, the yeah. And yeah. I mean, um, at some points in time, he was looked at as a serious mathematician or um, his role in, in map making and, and therefore exploration later on. And other points in history, people look at him as just a straight-up quacky occultist with no scientific endeavors whatsoever. And, you know, the truth is usually somewhere in between, right. but in his case also. But yeah, definitely a little bit of both. So before we get to him specifically, because to to understand John Dee, you really have to frame him in his time period and kind of his background where he came from to understand who he was, because he was a Catholic, he was actually a priest, but he lived in the time of the Reformation. And, you know, especially Elizabeth I, you know, Protestants coming into power and, um, you know, not that far after the the break with the Anglican Church of to the to the Catholic Church, but but even then, so this was this was a time of of tremendous change. And one thing I want to kind of make clear is what did it mean to be Catholic at the time, or what was Catholicism in his time? So it's it's really important to understand this, to understand him. If we just describe John Dee's practices and life without this background, it would seem that all of England was just like steeped in magic and. And everybody was into the occult, uh, which in some ways it kind of was. But but a lot of this was considered mainstream Christianity. Like this was not considered deviant in any way. Or, you know, there was a lot of just like ritual life that has since then kind of gone away. And there was a lot of, um, yeah, kind of occultist elements, not necessarily the priest class, let's say, but definitely the laymen that maybe didn't understand Catholic and never read the Bible themselves, you know, they, they, they were steeped into all kinds of strange beliefs. And what I would, you, I would be able to look at this and say, hey, you know what, uh, Catholicism at the time might be vastly different than what you might see today in the 21st century. Uh, here's a couple of examples. John Dee's baptism was more akin to an extensive ritualized exorcism than a baptism that you might see today. It involved holy water, yes, and oil, also salt, all of which had been um, exercised before the baptism itself. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. All right, so purified, if you will. Uh, he was anointed several times over repeated prayers, signs of the cross. Uh, symbols and candles were everywhere. Cloth was used that would later be burned. Uh, so, again, a purification sort of ritual. Uh, this is just the baseline in which John D. operated. That's one example 
of if you look at a Catholic baptism today, it's much let's say simplified. It wasn't hours of prayers and and yeah. So like when I was reading this, I was like, oh man, that's that's almost like ritual magic or something. It's a totally different kind of purification right. ceremony than than uh, a baptism today. But there, there's more. So um, it's known that John Dee conjured angels, and we'll get into the details of that. But at the time, people believed they were constantly surrounded by angels and demons and even told to pray from the book of hours or primer to keep the demons away. So this was like, um, you know, separate of the Bible. This is a, a book of prayers and people were constantly kind of in a ritualistic way to just told to repeat these prayers so that the demons don't get too close. Well, you know, to, like, to, a, to weird... a medieval person, there is a black and white. There is a good versus evil battle. Yeah, but it's just like you're constantly throughout the day it's almost like you spill salt or something. Like they really believe like, oh, you know, now the demons are one inch closer to me because I did something wrong or because, you know, I, there was this omen right here. I better, you know, rant off this prayer really, really quick and, and, uh, you know, then they'll, they'll back off again. So it's really like um, kind of a daily defense that you had to do. So your, your life involved tons of rituals, not just to be sucked up by evil forces, um, and in that light, it doesn't seem quite as weird to try to talk to the angels that are, you know, all around you, basically. So the Book of Hours, uh, I'm, I mentioned that as an example because to us, it would seem more like a book of magic spells. The, the prayers and rituals, like, weren't just like, you know, modern day prayers. It was more like repeating the names of God to gain favor with the king or protection spells from evil. So it really does seem more like a book of spells, if we read it you know, to our modern eyes, than a book of prayers. Well, right? you know, I, I will tell you, even in modern-day Catholicism, uh, many priests will tell you that no matter how small or big the prayer, that the act that you're having that continual conversation with God throughout the day is extremely mm-hmm. important. So there, there is bases that have continued through the centuries, yeah. even today. But you're right, there, there yeah. is a level of mysticism yeah. here. That you that you can see that John and, D must have must have soaked it, in. You know, in the Catholic Church, yeah, there's there's some memorized prayers like the Lord's Prayer, or I mean, even Protestants say the Lord's Prayer, right, but like right. the the what's it, Ave Maria, or something like there's you know like the the prayers on a rosary, right? There's that's kind of a part of it, but looking through some examples in this book, this goes so much like you're just you're just listing the names of God. You're not, you're not even asking him for anything. You're not saying like, please God protect me. You're just saying like. You know, El Yahweh. You know, and, and like, it's that's a magic ritual. Like, there's not a prayer. Um, you know, these traditions are really, really interesting, and and uh, they seem very strange to strange to us today. And uh, but they were very commonplace back then. Traditions like blessing candles that would protect you in times of storms, or the palms from a Palm Sunday that could you could use to bless your house. These all seem to us to to you know, solidly fall in the realm of magic or superstition, especially to the non-religious ear uh, or eye. It would it would have been back then seemed perfectly normal and conforming to Christianity and something that you would expect to do. Yeah, so it's almost like, yeah, some forms of like sympathetic magic or that kind of thing that they wouldn't call it magic at all. They, would, I mean, yeah, it would just be part of Christianity. So and we still we still have priests come over to to ha- new houses. To bless the house. To bless them. Yeah. yeah. And right. Yeah. That's yeah. a ritual in a way, but you're also, you're asking for protection from God. Yeah. yeah absolutely. I mean, Protestants yeah. do this also. There's a foundation not, here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I would say just keep in mind that Dee was growing up right before the English Protestant Reformation. So, during the struggles between Catholics and Protestants, even higher up Catholics, there started to become like a competition. So... Higher up Catholics, like, you know, priests, cardinals, that kind of thing, or, or bishops, let's say, they started to abandon the more magical folk elements of common Christianity and um, started to kind of enforce this in the laity. So even Catholics could now have access to English Bibles, let's say. And that kind of changed the day-to-day, uh, let's say, like religion or ritual aspect of the religion. Not the core beliefs, but... The, the kind of peripheral things that you would do on a day-to-day life. Yeah. Actually, pretty drastically. This is a big cases. step. This is no yeah. Vatican II from the 1960s, but it is it, a big step. It, it, it was. They were, they were um, trying to say, saying, okay, changes in the winds. So uh, Protestants are saying this and this because of A, B, and C. All right, so um, we have to compete. It was kind of a competition thing. And so this, uh, you know, when this started to happen, this left D open to attacks and accusations of conjuring 
which before no one would have accused him of anything because kind of everyone was doing it, but acts which would have seemed perfectly normal a few decades before, basically. So this all adds to his reputation that we get of him today. So it might seem outlandish, but you just got to think of, uh, like his his father was a priest and so or or a deacon or something. So, you know, you got to think of what his father raised him to be. And then within one generation, there was a huge generation gap. And um, we'll, we'll get to more details on this. So um, another interesting thing is that Dee claimed to be descendant of Welsh princes. So just to give a little more background of, of his family and, and where he came from. And um, this even went so far as to kind of court the legend that he was actually descended from King Arthur himself and Cadwalder. In reality, his ancestors in the English wealth border spelled their name do like D D U, which is Welsh for black, which is actually cognate with my last name Dow. It used to be pronounced Dub. Well, you're um, blowing my mind right now. Yeah, so <laughs> you know, just FYI, by the way, which I guess isn't really a stretch of the imagination. You know, Dow D. Yeah, sure, I could see it. So they they changed the spelling of their name after moving to London. They changed it to D E E. So John was the first in the family to really even go to a kind of normal school. So before they were just, you know, I, I wouldn't, I don't know, homeschool, I don't know. But so he learned Latin, he learned Aristotelian logic starting at 15 along with sophistry and taught both of those subjects after he earned his first degree and before he got his master's. Um, he got his master's in 1548 to kind of give you the the, the time period. So he was, he was born in Tower Ward, London, to a Welsh family from Radnorshire, is actually exactly where they're from, and he attended St. John's College in Cambridge from 1542 to 46, and he became a Catholic priest at age 26. This becomes very interesting later on, but um, he grew up in the church of St. Dunstan, and St. Dunstan is fittingly, very fittingly, I'd say also the patron of alchemists. I've kind of debated doing an episode on St. Dunstan, but you know, if you guys want to hear it, you know, send me an email. Let me know if you want to hear it or not. Otherwise, um, I'm not I'm not decided on that yet. But so his father was the church warden of St. Dunstan. Then later he was made a founding fellow of Trinity College, where the clever stage effects he produced for a production of Aristophanes' piece procured him the reputation of being a magician that kind of this reputation clung to him throughout the rest of his life. And Travis, he was a learned man. Uh, he went to St. John's College in Cambridge as well. He went abroad to learn mathematics, uh, which was one of his main interests and, of course, one of the things he was known for. Uh, he was in Cambridge where he also started his occult studies. Uh, he also started studying alchemy there, uh, which was called terrestrial astrology. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is interesting because we've we've noticed the tie a lot of times before. Here's actually just like terrestrial astrology, which makes no sense. But yeah, there's a strong connection between astrology and alchemy. You know, to to add a little bit more flavor to his background and his studies, he he also studied perspective, which he thought God led him to. It was his theories based on perspective that led him to the theories on occult rays. So you have the 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 rays of light that have the additional rays that would mm-hmm. go into the occult. Sphere. Yeah. All yeah. right. Uh, he also thought that he manipulated and, and shown through reflections. Yeah. He, yes, yeah, so he kind of did experiments with like mirrors and I don't know about prisms per se, but like definitely like through crystals. You know, he was big into like crystal gazing and that kind of thing. So, but he actually studied optics to see if there's a scientific background to these occult rays, which is interesting. See, so what you're saying, Travis, it, it actually is the definition of catoptric which is uh, the use of deviation to the use of light. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yep. So um, he was also at Cambridge where he met John Hatcher, who practiced angel magic. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a huge thing we'll talk about. That gets to be important, right. yep. Roger Bacon, we're familiar with that name. He was also influential. Bacon was in the camp that believed that knowledge was received through divine intervention, something we've talked about many times in the show. Yep. And by, and by Dee's time... This was interpreted as meaning conjuring spirits. Mm-hmm. You can see that kind of occult magic coming on. See it coming here, together, right? yeah. Coming together. Uh, during the Edwardian Reformation, in 1548, he moved to Louvain University along with a whole wave of Catholics that left England. There he studied Roman civil law. He studied astrology with Mercator. You know, yeah. Which was... Uh, with I, I, none I, other than, yeah. Yeah, exactly. About map making. He also met Henry II, which is interesting since it is at the same time of the famous Nostradamus. Yeah. 
So a lot, a lot of interesting connections. So in the late 1540s and early 1550s, he traveled Europe, like you said. So um, he also went through Brussels. He lectured in Paris on Euclid. He studied with, with Gemma Frisius and became a close friend of the cartographer, Gerardus Mercator, like you just mentioned, um, who's you know another famous name. Uh, he returned to England with an important collection of mathematical and astronomical instruments. And in 1552, he met yeah, Gerolamo Cardano in London. And during their acquaintance, they investigated a perpetual motion machine, as well as a gem purported to have magical properties. He was rector at Upton-upon-Severn from 1553. That's the same year he became a priest. So basically, he was offered a readership in mathematics at Oxford in, 54, in 1554, which he declined uh, because he was occupied with writing and perhaps hoped for a better position at court. And in 1555, he became a member of the Worshipful Company of Mercers, as his father had been. And that's um, it's basically kind of like a trade association. So that same year, in 1555, he was arrested with and charged with calculating for having cast horoscopes of Queen Mary and Princess Elizabeth. The charges were expanded to treason against Mary. So um, this happened both a lot. You know, this was kind of a paranoid time. If if you basically backed the wrong monarch, right, so between Mary and Elizabeth, um, it was easy to get charged with treason. So if you, if you smelled the winds and you said, oh, you know what, Mary isn't long for the throne, it's going to be her sister pretty soon, you got to be careful with that with that opinion, because if, if you said that too loudly or too early, then you'd be charged with treason, and, and it was a really da- dangerous time. There's also, we talked about this in Tycho Brahe, one other thing he was into is is natal astrology, which is, um, the word for that is genetheology. Um, so it's a very like mathematical kind of discipline where you look at the star chart at the time of someone's birth, and then you create a horoscope basically for their life. Right, and you know we talked like Tycho Brahe did a seventy-page one for Christoph of Denmark to defend himself against this treason charge. Dee appeared in the Star Chamber and exonerated himself, but was turned over to the Catholic Bishop Bonner for religious examination. So his strong and lifelong penchant for secrecy perhaps worsened matters because this entire episode was only the most dramatic in a series of attacks and slanders that basically followed D throughout his life. So he was always fighting some kind of accusation or, or other, but he cleared his name this time and he soon became a close associate of Bonner. Now, one of the really interesting aspects is his relationship with Queen Elizabeth. Yes, that's right, the real Queen Elizabeth of this time. He was an advisor to the Queen. When Queen Elizabeth took to the throne in 1558, Dee became her trusted advisor on astrological and scientific matters, choosing the actual date for Queen Elizabeth's coronation. From 1550s to the 1570s, he served as an advisor to England's voyages of discovery, providing technical assistance in navigation and ideological backing in the creation of the British Empire, quote-unquote, a term that he was the first to use. Now, Travis, this is really interesting for all yeah. those folks that, that really dig Navy history. He coined the word Britannia. Yeah, so he, he also coined the word, yeah, British Empire and Britannia. And so he developed a plan for the British Navy, and he was really adamant about having a British Navy. And he would kind of whisper into Elizabeth's ear that it's destiny for her to expand overseas because of Arthurian legends. Right. So, so saying, like, you need to take back Arthur's empire. And, you know, he was talking a lot about Europe, but um, he would also talk about the New World. And he even had some ideas that Arthur must have gone to the New World. And and uh, a lot of interesting stuff there. But but he was a proponent of the Navy. And he was also, a, at the time, a leading expert in navigation. And he actually had trained many of those who would conduct England's voyages of discovery. So he had, a you know, his maps and his... Um, geometry and that kind of thing really helped. So he was the first to apply Euclidean geometry to navigation. He built the instruments to apply Euclid, trained the first navigators, like I just said. He developed the maps, and he charted the northeast and northwest passages. Amazing. So, yeah. And then, so that seems pretty um, scientific, right? Yeah. So let me just jump to the next part of that. This is awesome. Yeah, he, <laughs> so he put a hex on the Spanish Armada, which is why there was bad weather and England won. Makes sense to me. Yep. Now, in reality, that, there are many reasons why the Spanish Armada did right. not win. But, but he got 
but I'll, some, give, I'll give him credit. Yeah, he got some kudos because <laughs> he, you know, he hexed the Armada. That's and right. They had a bad time. So um, we'll, we'll get back to some of this. So probably one of the most famous things that he's known for, and something we talked about a lot um, when we did the Sean Edward Kelly, was his angel conjuring. Okay? So at, at one point he picked up Kelly, and Kelly was actually his scryer. So basically um, he would sit down in front of his grid. I don't remember how much detail we went into it in Edward Kelly's episode. Well, but we went into a lot of detail. Yeah, he had yeah. basically a table in front of him with the the Enochian alphabet, and then you know Kelly went through this painstaking process that that they revised and evolved over time. But he would look into this basically crystal thing, which you can I think it's in the British Museum. You can still see it, and they also had a disc for scrying and all kinds of tools. And then he would slowly write down um, backwards. By the way, in the Enochian alphabet, and then, you know, that was the angel language, basically, and then they would translate that into English and get some kind of divination, some secrets, you know, divine secrets, basically. So the angels um, told Kelly that Britain would have, like, basically what they would have in their eventual empire. So he had an obsidian showstone, which came originally from the Aztecs or Mayans, and rests, it's in the British Museum, and they also had a special conjuring table, which had that... uh, the table of Eunuchian alphabet on it. Prior is basically just a crystal, a crystal gazer, right? That's what I mean by the term. So, so Kelly was D's scryer. He'd act as an intermediary between D and the angels. D kind of had the feeling that learning the secrets of nature was going too slow on his own. I mean, he thought that he could, you know, read between the lines and God would reveal some knowledge. So he, that's why he went to the angels instead. So D's first attempts were not really satisfactory, but in 1582, he met Edward Kelly this long-lasting relationship that he would have with Kelly. Uh, then going into the name of Edward Talbot. Yeah, I think we mentioned that in Kelly's show. Right, so don't get those kind of confused, same guy. Uh, who impressed him greatly with his abilities. Dee took Kelly into the service and began to devote all his energies to his supernatural pursuits. These spiritual conferences, or actions as they were called, were conducted with an air of intense Christian piety, always after periods of purification, prayer, and fasting. Dee was convinced of the benefits that they could bring to all mankind. The character of Kelly is hard to assess here, Travis, because uh, a lot of people, of course, on this show, mm-hmm. we've really mentioned that he was kind of a quack. Mm-hmm. And I think we can say that. I mean, some people would be maybe upset listening to the show tonight, thinking that he wasn't a quack, but all signs point to him that he was a There's, was plenty, a there's plenty of evidence, let's yeah, say. That he was yeah. a I, I, can, of, I can back that up. Of, yeah, yeah. High, high esteem. <laughs> so uh, some have concluded that he acted with complete cynicism. But delusion or self-deception are not out of the question here. Kelly's output is remarkable for its sheer mass, its, its intricacy and vividness. Dee maintained that the angels laboriously dictated several books to him in this manner. Uh, some of this is, is special angelic or Enochian language. So yeah, really, and, he would be the only one to decipher this stuff. Yeah, and right? painstaking. So Kelly, um, being the quack that he was, he still had to think of what he wanted to say backwards in Enochian, write it down, and then write it forwards, and then translate it to English. And they had a dictionary, so he couldn't just make up gibberish. They had a dictionary, um, which I own, by the way. Which I, is this your library? I think I've mentioned it like five <laughs> times now on the show. You but have this in your personal I have library? the Anakian dictionary. So, yeah, there's just so many rituals around this. Like, you know, we said there's all these, these periods of purification, prayer and fasting. Um, at one point, so Dee kept really thorough journals in all, during all of this. So that's, that's how we know some of this. Some of the books were burned, obviously, later. But um, at one point, he noted he, he had this seance. He would have Cornelius Agrippa's Occult Book Open. And I'm also bringing that up because I also own that book. You're amazing. That's right. Um, so one, one tiny, another little detail I came across that was interesting is that so that he had the reflecting light off of the surfaces, so through this um, obsidian stone, for instance, and sometimes they'd have it submerged in three liquids. So um, there's a lot of ritual and detail that went into this whole kind of process of getting this knowledge. And the fact that they actually wrote books of it, I mean, they had so much content they could fill multiple volumes just kind of blows my mind that i mean they must have spent days and days and days years doing this basically this is interesting too travis members of the rosicrucian movement claim d as one of their very own numbers 
uh, depending on who you ask, even a founding member. Yeah, so I actually started my outline for the Rosicrucian episode. That's that's, that's happening. coming up. That's right. happening. Right. And um, yeah, it's really interesting. So he was a huge, he was not a founding member. That's a myth. Yeah, this is a doubt, right? But he is a huge uh, influence on the original Rosicrucian founders. Yeah, so we'll get more in detail on that on the on that show. But you know, Travis, there is some doubt, even though there's a strong connection to uh, the influence that he had on the Rosicrucian movement. Uh, th- there is some doubt that yeah, that uh, an organized Rosicrucian movement did exist during Dee's lifetime, but had no evidence that he ever belonged to this secret fraternity. Dee's reputation as a magician. And the vivid story of his association with Edward Kelly have made him seemingly irresistible figure to uh, fabulists, uh, writers of horror stories, and latter-day magicians. Uh, The accretion of false and often fanciful information about D often obscures the facts of his life. So we get this kind of mist of time and and magic. We don't really kind of know exactly where his place was in all this. Yeah, Um, yeah, because the Rosicrucians actually were founded after his time, but they dated themselves to 100 years before. And so that's so, where the confusion comes in. Okay, play. yeah, okay. and, and they, they use his symbols. Um, when we get to it, I'll, I'll, I'll point it out. But yeah, they use his symbols like on the cover of their book, of their first manifesto. So there's, so the, there's that connection. He is, yeah, he is huge in their mind. Um, Francis Yates theorized that he was kind of a significant inspiration, which I've read in other sources also. Um, yeah, they like they used the monas. But... Um, to Yates, Rosicrucians and Christian Kabbalists are kind of, I mean, nearly identical. Not not all are are not all Rosicrucians are Christian Kabbalists and vice versa. But um, yeah, to her, to to him, they're basically kind of the same thing. So Rosicrucians want an all around reform to Christianity and to include aspects of Kabbalistic theory and Hermeticism. D very much kind of fit the bill of that. So it, it makes a lot of sense that that they. You know, just included him and went into one of their own, but um, well, he he just wasn't. <laughs> yeah, and and there's there's this kind of back and forth, and folks, you're going to get this idea listening to to this biography tonight because you're going to see that he's got one leg in the the world of mysticism, or and he's got the other leg basically in the the rooted world of religion. He was a very intensely pious Christian. All right, we can't ever let that go. That that's where his foundation is. But his Christianity was deeply influenced by the Hermetic and the Platonic and Pythagorean doctrines that were persuasive in the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. He believed that the numbers were the basis of all things that, and the key to, 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 to knowledge that we all need to have, that God's creation was an act of numbering. Yeah. So from Hermeticism, he drew the belief that man had the potential for divine power and that he believed that the divine power could be exercised through mathematics. Yeah, and this was by no mean you know, an isolated event. I mean, Kepler had strange beliefs. 150 years later, Isaac Newton had very strange beliefs. They were all, I mean, Kepler was a Lutheran, but he had some kooky ideas also. So, I mean, yeah, this is kind of a product of the time, really. Um, So uh, he has to talk, to touch a little bit about Christian Kabbalah. I know we've done a show on Kabbalah before, but so uh, what it meant to D specifically was there was um, Postel's theories that all alphabets from Yod, which is the fourth letter, and therefore four is divine, okay? So uh, D often noted that his name started with Delta, which is the fourth letter of the Greek alphabet, okay? So D made that connection that, oh, look, it's, you know, and D even sometimes Latinized his name as Deus, like God in Greek. So, um, yeah, there was definitely a connection there. The the, the angel magic had a very strong Kab- Kabbalistic feel for it. So um, the angel magic was hi- heavily numerolog- numerological. Like when we're talking about the table they had in front of them, think of like an Excel spreadsheet. Like there was, you know, it was columns and rows and, and there was definitely a Kabbalistic aspect to it. And his, his work on practical mathematics, navigation, for example, were simply the exalted and kind of mundane ends of the same spectrums, not the contradictory things that we now see them as. So he saw maths as on one end you can do 4 plus 4, and on the other end you can find divine uh, knowledge. Pythagoras had similar ideas. You know, if if you learned about Pythagoras in math school, you're going to learn about one end of the spectrum. And if I talk about him, you're going to learn about the other end of the spectrum, right? So... Um, in his day and age, 
mathematics, if you said I was a mathematician, people would almost gravitate towards, oh, he's kind of an occultist, you know? Wait, don't you think that Not would give irrational. You a, a little bit of concern if, if you're on a boat and you're trusting in his navigation uh, knowledge set that you're going to get where you need to be if you feel like this guy's got dabbling in a cult? Because he definitely had... Yeah. <laughs> no, it's two ends of the same spectrum. Yes. So, no, he absolutely had real mathematics, and his Euclidean maps were genius, and it had nothing occult-based about them. But to him, they were related. I mean, it was... Yeah, okay. same as Pythagoras. Like, he definitely was a genius in yeah in geometry, but at the same time, especially his followers, had some, some pretty kooky ideas. So... Um, D also had the goal to help bring forth a kind of unified world religion through basically the, like healing the breach of the Catholic and Protestant churches, same as Luther, same as Kepler, same as you know all those all those people. Um, he also very much like Isaac Newton had the idea to recapture the pure theology of the ancients. This is like straight out of the Isaac Newton episode. It's it's exactly the same kind of um, belief. So um, Francis Yates also again has this viewpoint that to see him as a Christian Kabbalist really does a good job of explaining the weird mixture of occult and science. So, you know, you have this high, highly mathematical basis, but then the extrapolations of that are very kind of strange at, at some times. So, you know, it's a the Christian Kabbalah kind of does a good job of tying those together and, you know, gives you a kind of a unified theory of, of his views. Yes, yeah, so he was also a student of the Renaissance Neoplatonist, Marsilio Ficino. Now, Dee did not exactly draw distinctions between his mathematical research and his investigations into hermetic magic, like we said, or angel summoning or divination. So instead, yeah, like we said, he considered these different facets of the same quest. Um, Marsilio Ficino was kind of an interesting character in that way, too. So the search for a transcendent understanding of divine form, which underlie the visible world, D called pure verities, like, yeah, so, you know, like the pure vert virtue of, of combining science with knowledge. So he even translated Euclid and wrote the famous mathematical preface, Mapping Mathematical Studies for the Future, a kind of system of sciences based on math. Mm -hmm. So it is an important stepping stone in the history of science, kind of. So not just completely out there, like some of the older historians would have said a generation or two ago. So but, let's yeah. kind of get back to, to the, the naval con connection that he had. You like the, that part, huh? And yeah. the, it's the age of discovery. This is awesome stuff. And you just, you don't hear this stuff. And this might be really brand new history for a lot of people. You know, he was commissioned by Elizabeth to establish a legal foundation for colonizing North America. Uh, he went back all the way back to Madoc, a Welsh prince who took a group over to New England in the Middle Ages and established the first colony and intermarried with the Indians, but with little or no historical trace, uh, but for this legend. Yeah, Okay, so right. add that yeah. legend maybe to some of the, the Viking connections that are, that are there. But it, yeah, I feel more Vikings might have happened. Right. This, but this not so much. Yeah, this was kind of a way for the, for the British to say, no, we have precedence. Right. It's not just the Spanish. We were, we, in fact, we were there before the Spanish, right? So. In, his in his title royal in 1580, he invented the claim that Madog Ab Abwain uh, Gwynharad uh, discovered America in 1170 with the intention of ensuring that England's claim to the New World was stronger than that of Spain, one of the leading competitors in the exploration mm -hmm. field. He further asserted that Brutus of Britain and King Arthur, as well as Madog, had conquered lands in the Americas and therefore their heir, Elizabeth I of England, had the priority claim there. He thought that some Native American languages were descendant of Welsh. That's a nice little fact yeah. of the podcast Where there. Where he's from. One of, one right. of many. Yeah. Yeah. So, a little tip of the hat to the home people of, 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 uh, of Wales. Yeah. So maybe they sound similar. I don't know. But um, yeah, it was, yeah, kind of some interesting little side notes there that I, I really liked reading about. It was really interesting stuff. Okay, here we go again. This is like the 10th time on the show that we mentioned you're, you're this book. You're going to say it. Yeah, so the Voynich Manuscript. Oh, boy. Drink. Everybody drink. <laughs> it's a drinking game. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, so I don't know if I need to say again what it is, but it's basically the most mysterious kind of – it's basically a cipher that has yet to be deciphered, the Everest of cipher studies, as you will. Um, and named after Wilfred Michael Voynich, who bought the manuscript in 1912. Now, the – 
the person who's named after this Wilfried Voynich actually suggested that D may have owned the manuscript and sold it to Rudolf II. We know Rudolf II had it. It came up in Tycho Brahe. It came up in Rudolf II. It came up several other places here and there. So um, if you actually want to go out and see it, it's in the it's at Yale in the um, Beinecke Library. You might want to call ahead. Maybe. Uh, so it's, you know, yeah, it's probably like just kind of an herbal and maybe an almanac by Anthony Ashcombe. That's one guess that we haven't said before on the show. Basically, no one knows. It's, I mean, we've gone over the theories and, and other other podcasters have talked about it at length. So um, it's just a really interesting book. Go look it up. Yeah, we so we mentioned John Dee in a Rudolf II episode because... Um, he did actually meet Rudolf II, but his contacts with Rudolf were probably far less extensive than had previously been thought. Dee's diaries don't show any evidence of the sale of the Voynich manuscript. Dee was, however, I mean, he had a huge library. We're about to get into that, but he's known to have possessed a copy of the Book of Soiga, which is another kind of encrypted book, which is, you know, comparable in some ways. So... Could be possible. No one really knows for sure. I don't really want to speculate, but it's it's a fun theory. So why not? You're talking about the library, Travis. I would almost equate uh, equate his his love of books and his uh, amassment of books to Thomas Jefferson of the of the American colonies at the time, who just owned a vast amount of of library books. As a matter of fact, that's the core of the Library of Congress in the United States. Yeah. So so look look at this situation where he had the greatest library in England of over four thousand books. Now, Travis, they may not sound like a big number to today's ears. You know, you just go down to a, a local bookstore, you'll see more oh, than four thousand books. Yeah, it's legendary. The, yeah. These books were handwritten, painstakingly handwritten, and were treasures every Yeah, last so we're one. talking four thousand rare texts and yeah, absolutely. So Dee presented Queen Mary with a kind of a visionary plan for the preservation of old books. You know, manuscripts, records, um, you know, all that kind of thing. And basically like a founding of a national library. This was back in 1556, but his proposal was not accepted. And instead, he just kind of went off on his own and, and expanded his personal library at his house in Mortlake. And so he just tirelessly, you know, acquired books and manuscripts in England. And then every time he went to the to the continent, he would enlarge his library when he came back. So it was it was a a center of learning outside of universities. And like you said, it was became the greatest and biggest in England and also attracted many scholars, um, which, again, that's where some of his connections come from, is people just knocking on his door saying, hey, you got, can I read your books, man? Some of the books that he studied and were in his, in his library, which was the Emerald Tablet, we talked about that like our second show, um, Aristotle, Arnold of Villanova, we did a show on him. Avicenna, he's on my list. Geber, did a show on him. Roger Bacon, did a show on him. Um, it also include, included Ramon Lull, did a show on him. Pico della Mirandola, did a show on him. Did a show or it's on we my talk, list? We, we talked about him. Yeah, I know he's yep. on my list. Um, Reuchlin, probably on the list. Agrippa, I own the same book. Um, Georgie, another side note, I just mentioned Roger Bacon. John Dee believed that Roger Bacon's real name before he took religious orders was David D. Any relation? I don't know. But there, <laughs> Why yeah, not? just another he's that smart. Another let's, let's name D, right? Yeah, fun little side <laughs> snippet. So um, I have a cousin named David Dow, so um, close, close, en- enough. close enough, mm-hmm. right? Travis, you alluded to the fact that he did uh, come back from his voyages to the continent bringing back books, but it, when he was on the continent, he really made some inroads. And, and I, I got to say, this is, um, in some historical books, you'll see this as like, phase two of his life. So he went from being Elizabeth's advisor to the courts kind of changed against him in somewhat. And um, the angels were telling him that if Elizabeth won't listen, then maybe Rudolf II will. Because Rudolf II, like we mentioned, was the other tolerant person between Protestants and Catholics, right? So if, the angels, you, the angels were, were telling him to leave. If you were a little, little on the edge of a different type of knowledge set, you probably went to Prague uh, in Bohemia, where Rudolf II was was ruling, because he was very tolerant of these type of things. But you know, along the way, he he stopped at different potentates and and uh, uh, emperors and kings uh, to to kind of in, uh, encourage this trade of knowledge. And and in one su- one such story, uh, he had four carriages full of books with his entourages included. So he actually went with the Polish nobleman Lasky. 
uh, when they went to, to Europe to do the tour and, and try and tried to uh, gather more information. I note that he left heavily indebted at this time uh, as Kelly was actually making double the money from Lasky than Dee was making at, uh, at that moment. So the relationship became very different between Kelly and Dee. Yeah, it started, it started became strained. Kind of a different situation, right? Yeah. And, and it, don't, it really didn't get much better. <coughs> he had, he had audiences with Emperor Rudolph II in Prague at Prague Castle and King Stefan uh, Battery of Poland, and attempted to convince them of the importance of his angelic communications. His meeting with the Polish King Stefan Bat- Battery uh, took place at the royal castle in Nipomlans near Krakow. Uh, at the time, was the capital of Poland. It was widely analyzed by Polish historians and, and writer Willemar Lasek. Yeah. While generally they accepted him as being a man of wide and deep knowledge, they also pointed out with his connections with the English monarch Elizabeth. Ah, the politics, right? Yeah, right? always this, the politics. This, this prompted them to uh, conclude that the meeting could have a hidden political agenda. Nevertheless, the Polish king, who, being a devout Catholic, was very cautious of any supernatural media uh, started with the meeting with a statement that all prophetic revelations were finalized with the mission of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So right. you, d- you don't need any more prophets. We're, yeah, it's, we're going to make done. this you yeah. know, very you know, pious. He also stressed that he would take part in the event provided that there would be nothing against the teachings of the Holy Catholic Church. So that was a caveat to even participate in what he considered probably an on-edge uh, type, type of uh, meeting. Yeah, so there's a couple interesting notes here about his time in Prague. So Dee offered Rudolf to crystal gaze and see the visions for himself. Rudolf declined. In fact, the the meeting um, that historians now accept was kind of strained. Rudolf, he didn't really grab Rudolf's attention with his... Because Dee, for one, marched into the Prague castle and started... You know, warning Rudolf that if he doesn't change his ways, doom, blah blah blah. Dude, that must have so, been an average Tuesday for Rudolf. Yeah, because, so Rudolf because was like, a lot of crazy guys coming exactly. to the court. Exactly. So <laughs> yeah, Rudolf invited him in. I mean, yeah. So you know, Rudolf probably yawned and was like, eh, "Okay, I'll pass." But Dee's son Michael was baptized in Saint Vitus. Did you know that? I did not know that. That's awesome. Huh? Right here in Prague. Right here. Dee even asked Kelly that Willem Rosenberg should join them. Rosenberg also employed alchemists for decades. We've, I think we've mentioned him before. Um, and then they stayed in, in Rosenberg's estates in Tribon for two years, which that definitely came up in, in uh, the Kelly episode. Dee was a friend of Tejo Brahe uh, and was familiar with the work of Nicholas Copernicus. Many of his astronomical calculations were based on Copernic- Copernican assumptions, but he never openly espoused the heliocentric theory. Dee applied uh, Copernican theory to the problem of the calendar reform. In 1583, he was asked to advise the queen about the new Gregorian calendar that had been promulgated by Pope Gregory XIII from October 1582, and his advice was that England should accept it. Although with seven specific amendments, the first of these was that the adjustment should not be the 10 days that would restore the calendar to the time of the council in Nicaea in 325, but 11 days, which would restore it to the birth of Christ. Another proposal of Dee's was to align the civil and liturgical years and to have them both start on January 1st. Perhaps predictably, England chose to spurn any suggestions that had papist origins, despite any merit they may objectively have, and Dee's advice was rejected. That makes sense. And I gotta say, why would you do it 11 days? You're going to be one day behind the rest of the world or ahead of the rest of the world? More so. At this point, this is is Protestant England. They're they're not going to do anything to bend over to Catholic ideas. It makes sense to conform with the rest of the world so you're not constantly flipping through a calendar converter. Yeah, right? but at but, the same time, the, you know, they measure, yeah, they measure people political. in stones, they it measure was, people in miles. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is something that I know everybody, when you t- we talk about Kelly, you talk I, about D. Got to bring it up. You, you talk about wife swapping. Yeah, got to bring it up because um, for those of, for those of right. the listeners that <laughs> missed the Kelly episode, yeah, got to gotta bring it up. Put the kids to bed before we start talking about this one. Uh, during the spiritual conference in Bohemia in 1587, Kelly told Dee that the angel Uriel had ordered that the two men should share their wives. Kelly, who by the time was becoming a prominent alchemist and was much more sought after than Dee, may have wished to use this as a way to end the spiritual connection and conferences that they had with each other. The order caused Dee great, great anguish. But he did not doubt its genuineness and apparently allowed it to go forward, but broke off the, co- the conferences immediately afterwards. 
and did not see Kelly ever again. Dee returned to England in 1589. Yeah, so they did They did write letters after this, but obviously this was too awkward, too weird. Could you imagine and, the dinner table, Travis? Hey, yeah, honey, no. um, here's the deal. So the, What the, do you think about John Kelly? The book had like a whole chapter on this. The, the, the journal entries, the weirdness, the awkwardness, and then um, Dee returned to England. And um, there's a lot of detail I'm leaving out here as far as their... Kelly's and Dee's relationship and how it kind of changed. Kelly was the one that Rosenberg was paying. And then Kelly was paying Dee, a small percentage of that. And Kelly had just had enough. Because think of, of, so Kelly wanted to be an alchemist full time. That's what he was getting paid for. And Dee was really more into learning more knowledge. So getting like divine knowledge. And we described the angel magic earlier. I mean, it, you know, they did it every day, basically, and it must have been almost a full-time job. By the time you're done with the cleansing rituals to sit down at the table, and then Kelly has to concoct, you know, backwards, Enochian script, and the, the scrying took a long time, you know, kind of, you know, very slow-paced event. Kelly was just sick of it, you know? And and the other thing about, this happened in Europe, and this is important to note, um, which I'm not sure we mentioned in the Kelly episode, that Kelly's angelic visions were very astute in England because Kelly was very close to the court and knew which way the wind was blowing. As soon as they went to Poland and and Bohemia, the angel started to make false predictions because Kelly didn't know what was going on, so he was kind of saying nonsense a lot of the time, and he he just didn't have that astuteness, so it just didn't seem quite as divine. And so people were starting to look at Kelly sideways. They were like, wait a minute, what's the deal with this? Um, Dee also caught Kelly lying once. Um, I don't remember how that happened. Awkward. But so, yeah, so there was a lot of there was a lot of weird stuff going on. And Dee just was, I don't know if he was naive, but he bought into it 100%. And Kelly just kind of, you know, just couldn't keep up appearances for we, that long. We mentioned this in another episode when we talked about this with, with Kelly and Dee, that there's also another thought that I think we can put into this, that you're right, Kelly was fed up with this stuff. And wanted to move on, and he think, and he probably thought the only way to get rid of D was to say something so outlandish, like to share mm-hmm. our wives, mm-hmm. that that would do the deal. But D was so connected to Kelly in many respects, and, and well, really believed D was so in pious. Him. He said, yeah. "If the angels say the so, angel, then I got to do it." D yeah. feared for his future many, many times. So he he always believed that if he didn't listen to the, do what the angels said, that he would be even more in debt and have a tougher future. Now here, here's the deal, Travis. Who got the better end of the deal here? I, mean, I think. Uh, was it was Dee's wife the younger one? Well, Dee's wife became pregnant shortly thereafter. Uh-oh. You remember that? Yeah, I do. Yeah. So we don't know whose so, baby whose baby daddy is this. Is probably right Kelly's. Right? Yeah, oh, probably Kelly's. This is awkward. Um, okay, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> Next. So the most famous thing that um, Dee today is probably known for is his a little symbol. And this also comes back to Kabbalah and all that, but um, this is on the front cover of, or on the, at least on the title page of the Rosicrucian Manifesto, one of them, one of three, I should say, um, and that is the hieroglyphic monad. And this is pretty famous. Many people that have been listening to the show have probably seen it somewhere, maybe on my website. Okay, so let me break down this monad. It's a symbol. You probably have to go to the site to see it. I mean, it looks kind of like a person with a dot in the middle of his head, with horns, um, he looks you know, angry. arms, feet, kind of a stick figure, let's yeah. say, like an XKCD stick figure with horns. But So basically, it's the astro- astrological symbol for Mercury, with the hook of Aries, meaning fire at the bottom. That's his feet, kind of. But it also included Earth, um, which is the cross in the middle, which is also a Christian symbol. The gold or sun, which is his head with the dot in the middle. In fact, all four elements are in their proper place. So one is above the other, right? So you got, yeah, fire, earth, and, you know, so forth. Also, moon, silver is represented. And then the glyph is representing and has some of the power of, so the glyph actually has power itself, of the Philosopher's Stone. So um, the monad is the egg that brought everything into being. So that's kind of a Pythagoras kind of thinking to neoplatonists or gnostics it's the one mind or the one you can see our show on neoplatonism for more details on that or my my interview with uh, peter adamson and so in 1564 d wrote the hermetic work monas hieroglyphica the hieroglyphic monad and this originally he dedicated to rudolph's father matthias and this was or his grandfather this was he wanted to dedicate it to 
Elizabeth, who was going to unite the world and under one Christianity, but you know he, he was kind of not getting the sense that she would do this, so he dedicated it to uh, Matthias to in the hopes that he would patronize him in some ways. Um, that that never quite materialized, so he presented it to his son Rudolf II. So it's basically an exhausted, an exhaustive, cabalistic interpretation of the glyph of his own design. So it was just kind of meant to represent philosopher's stone, but also the mystical unity of all creation. He traveled to Hungary to present it to Maximilian II. It was originally dedicated to Maximilian II. He was a Holy Roman Emperor. And then this work was highly valued by many of these contemporaries. But the loss of the secret oral tradition of um, kind of Dee's thought process behind this was kind of difficult to interpret today. It also kind of involves a... Um, so basically, if you unfold the monas, you get an, you get alchemical vessels. And also interesting to note, there. I don't know if I'll... I'll probably have a picture of that on my website too. Um, there's an interesting note is that the monas contains Habsburg symbology because Dee believed it could be the Austro-Hungarian Empire, that could be the last empire, which would unite Christians before the apocalypse, basically, if it wasn't Elizabeth's. So he also worked on the Monas on his way to Bratislava to witness the coronation of Maximilian to be the king of Hungary. So it could have been a little royal flattery, let's say, right? So again, we mentioned the links to Kabbalah, but to dive into that a little bit more thoroughly, so it supposedly explains all letters of the three divine alphabets, their place and numbers. So this this gets complicated. But for instance, the Latin numeral X is 10. So X on the monas is the cross in the middle, right? Also the, the symbol of earth. Um, he even gave it Pythagorean meaning. So add the four elements to some other Pythagorean numbers. Basically, 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 is 10, again, right? But also... 1 times 2 plus 3 times 4 is 21, and that's its place in the Latin alphabet. So, um, likewise, V and L follow similar patterns, you know, like, so 5 and 50. You can also deconstruct the monas to get all the planetary symbols. 252 is a word, is, is a number that's represented in there somehow, which is the Philosopher's Stone. And also ELL, which is a name of God which came up in Fulcanelli's episode. <laughs> um, so this symbol, and I, I just scratched the surface. So it's this one symbol that has just so many levels of meaning, which, yeah, definitely should r- remind our listeners of, of the Kabbalah, but um, it has just so many levels of meaning. It's just such a fascinating thing that it's kind of a shame some of his thoughts on this were lost, but a lot of the stuff we do know is just, yeah, it's just a really deep thing. That went a long ways into influencing the Rosicrucian and and kind of the way that they thought about some of the symbols and and things that they believed in. So um yeah, that's it's that's good stuff. That's a book in in, a, in and of itself. That could be a podcast in and of itself. Um that's all I'm going to say about that here. In fact, why don't we get to the meat of the podcast here? Why don't we get to the to the alchemy? His main connection to alchemy uh, this is very important. His studies of optics influenced his thought on alchemy and the way you can focus on natural light with a mirror and make it stronger influenced his thought on agreeing with Roger Bacon that you can use inf- you can influence nature to act stronger than it does by itself and therefore creating gold and that purer than found in nature. And uh, part of his, his alchemical background, he was influenced by Paracelsius. Yeah, and I thought that was an interesting kind of take on the theory, one that I hadn't really heard before. So he said... You know, because there's the art versus nature debate, and they say, look, alchemy is an imitation like art, which means you can never do something better than nature can. Um, just like a painting will never come to life. And John Dee said, well, yeah, but look, you can, by using mirrors and by using bent surfaces, you can make a light stronger than it appears in nature, like a magnifying glass. So why couldn't you create some kind of similar um, kind of operation in the lab and create gold that is purer than gold. Well, so think, think about optics kind of and a, cameras, right, Travis? I mean, you know, you, yeah. you're, taking, you're taking a picture yeah. of something that's not so he nature, just, but maybe more Yeah, so he just vibrant. made a kind of parallel connection there that right. I, I'd never read before. That was kind of interesting. I know um, Kepler dabbled in optics, and, and there's other alchemists that did, but uh, I never heard it broken down like that or used that never used that argument before. So yeah, pretty interesting. Okay, so to kind of wrap up the show here, I know it's already... 
an hour or so long. So um, the, the third phase of his life was when he split with Kelly and went back to England, right? So after six years in Europe, he was he returned to his summer beach house, basically, to find his ri- library in ruined and ransacked, and many of his prized books and instruments stolen, um, which basically his creditors came and got. They just ransacked his house. So he sought support from Elizabeth, who finally made him warden of Christ College Manchester in 1595. And this former college of priests had been reestablished as a Protestant institution by royal charter in 1578. Um, to make a long story short, so he really uh, he found this thing, this uh, position, the the this position of being a warden as kind of a um, he, the most of the court around Elizabeth was a, fully against him. He had to fight libel and slander left and right, and this was kind of an exile. So Elizabeth just wanted to get him out of his hair. In, you know, this, I'm simplifying it a little bit, but still. So the Christ College in Manchester was in shambles. In fact, they, you know, landlords just moved in and started renting out um, the buildings to tenants. So it was just, you know, there wasn't even much of a college there at all. He couldn't exert much control over the fellows, and they kind of despised or cheated him. Like they wouldn't, they wouldn't pay him if they left, if he left town. And he spent a lot of, you know, years of that time in London, so they just wouldn't pay him. Early in his tenure, he was consulted on the demonic possession of seven children. Now, one stream of historians say he took little interest in the matter, even though he did allow those involved to consult pretty still extensive library. Other historians disagree with that and say, no, he actually was pretty involved and giving active kind of consultations, which he had done in the past also. Um, so hard to hard to say what exactly happened there. But um, yeah, he was consulted on this demonic possession and it's kind of an interesting story of it in and of itself. But he left Manchester in 1605 to return to London, but he remained warden basically for the rest of his life. Um, around that time, Elizabeth passed away and James I was completely unsympathetic. Oh, one, one side note is that this was a Protestant college and he was a preacher, they didn't know he was a Catholic priest. like That That would have caused problems. Yeah, that would have caused problems. So, I mean, he had all kinds of issues later in life. But James I, with you know, kind of a, a symptom of his problems, was completely unsympathetic to anything related to the supernatural, provided no help to Dee. Um, Dee basically spent his final years in poverty at Mortlake, forced to sell off various of his possessions to support himself and his daughter. And his daughter Catherine kind of carried, cared for him until his end. He died in Mortlake late in 1608 or early 1609, aged 82. Both the parish registers and Deve's gravestone are missing, so that's why the exact date's hard to pin down. In 2013, so just last year, a memorial plaque to Dee was placed on the south wall of the present church there. One another interesting side note here, maybe the last one of the podcast, is that his son Arthur also became an alchemist. Uh, Arthur, I believe, was the one that was Kelly's son. <clears throat> really? Yeah. Oh. So, like father, that, like son. I wonder huh? if that message ever got to him. I or, I don't know. Uh, it's interesting. It's yeah. also you know you'd have to do some DNA tests somehow. Like that's it's all kind of speculation. Just the timing is really perfect. So, John D, you are not the father. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's a lot of you know D in pop culture just pops up all over the place. Goethe possibly used him as an inspiration for Faust. Um, as far back as the 16th and 17th centuries, Edmund Spencer may refer to Dee in The Fairy Queen. I'll, I think I'll do a show on Edmund Spencer, or at least bring him up in the Elizabeth I um, episode, because he's interesting too. Really interesting guy. William Shakespeare may have modeled the character of Prospero in The Tempest on Dee. No, and, and also Shakespeare might have based King Lear on him. So kind of interesting, interesting stuff. In H.P. Lovecraft's uh, Cthulhu myth- Mythos, Dr. John Dee is supposed to have Im- imperfectly translated the Necronomicon into English. John Dee is the alter ego of DC Comics character Dr. Destiny as well. Mm-hmm. All right. Dee, fi- uh, Dee figures prominently in the mystical occult mythology created by the, con- the concept album Imaginos in 1988 by the American rock band Blue Oyster Cult. John Dee is a uh, is a vampire in White Wolf's pen and paper role playing game Vampire: The Masquerade. Never heard of it. Never played it. <laughs> I, <heard. laughs> 
I have a life. God damn it, Coleman. So in more recent history, the novel Here There Be Dragons set D as a bad caretaker of the Imaginum Geographica. The PS3 game Uncharted 3, Drake's Deception, frequently mentions D as a part of its plot. The plot of the Wii U game Zombie U is based on D's supposed apocalyptic prophecies. 2010 Iron Maiden album The Final Frontier features a track titled The Alchemist, which takes Dr. D as his protagonist, referencing his works. Well done. How do you, f- how do you feel about that? Um, a little scared. Yeah. Um, so, man, I'm so happy we finally got to do this episode. I've been looking forward to this one for a long time. A lot of reading, buddy. Yeah. So I hope you guys enjoyed that one. And thank you very much for listening. Thanks. You've been listening to the History of Alchemy podcast with Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. For more information about this episode, other episodes, and other information about alchemy, alchemists, and related subjects, visit historyofalchemy.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, and don't forget to rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page or Twitter at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast all about the Czech Republic, Bohemican, which is also available on iTunes or on bohemican.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy podcast, thank you for listening. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.